Standing for the reading of Scripture this morning, which we'll find in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. This morning we come to verses 9 through 13. The Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 9, beginning in verse 9, let us hear and attend to God's Word. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen, till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant, And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and that they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. Have you ever considered that the New Covenant Christian doctrine of the resurrection is about more than someone returning from the dead? Now, we hear popular stories about people claiming a near-death experience or claiming to have returned from the dead. It seems that this is recounted in every generation. There are those stories that go around. And also in both the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures, there are accounts of people being raised from and returning from the dead. We don't deny that. We have it in the Bible. But here is the difference, and this is what I really want to focus in on this morning. And that is, those who were raised from the dead in the Old Testament and in the New Testament were not resurrection glorified. That is the unique revelation and covenantal pledge of Jesus' resurrection. So what about those people who were raised from the dead in the Old Testament, the New Testament? Well, one of two things would have happened. Uh, They would have gone through physical death, or they may have been taken up uh, like Enoch was. Uh, They may have been taken up at Jesus' ascension. Uh, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us fully. Um, But this is what I do know, that when they were raised from the dead, they were not resurrection glorified. That is the pledge and promise that we have of the unique revelation of Jesus' resurrection. He is the pledge of resurrection and glory that is given to us um, as promise. So we continue on in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9 this morning. I want you to remember what we're looking at here in the Gospel of St. Mark chapter 9, that the New Covenant Christian Gospel is the God-ordained means for the transcendent power of the kingdom of God in heaven to be made imminent in the earth. And what we mean by that is the supernatural power and presence of the triune God is personally knowable and is made known to us through the person and work, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. If you remember verses 1 through 8, the first part of this chapter was the transfiguration. The transfiguration of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And it dramatically displays the transcendent and the imminent divine being who empowers the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God, uh, kingdom of heaven on earth. Who is that transcendent and imminent divine being? It is Jesus himself. He is the God-man. And that's what the transfiguration punctuates by way of exclamation. Peter uh, gives us the crescendo, the the 
uh, witness that raises to its highest point in saying, we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. You're the Messiah who's to come into the world. And Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter, my Father who is in heaven. And now the Father in heaven descending in the glory cloud with the, the transfigured presence of the divine person bursting through the humanity of the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in that vision and declaring, this is my beloved son, this is my son, hear him. With uh, Moses and Elijah there in that apocalyptic vision that was revealed to Peter, James, and John. And by that, we're given a preview of resurrection glory. And that preview is punctuating for us with an exclamation point. This is the transcendent and the eminent divine being who empowers the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven on earth. That's what Jesus came preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe the gospel. Remember that back in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel? Jesus came preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here, it's present. Believe the gospel. We come this morning then to follow up from the event of the transfiguration with verses 9 through 13 that I just read to you. The transfiguration of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, gives a covenantal pledge previewing theological resurrection as more than someone returning from the dead. Remember I opened up with that question this morning. Have you considered that the Christian doctrine of the resurrection is about more than someone returning from the dead? Well, this is what is the discussion as Jesus and the uh, three apostles, Peter, James, and John, descend from the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, remember, Peter was reaching for the connection between the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths and the Feast of Firstfruits or Harvest. They they're, uh, overlap one another. And when he heard the discussion of Moses and Elijah with Jesus about his exodus that he was going to accomplish at Jerusalem, Peter was reaching for that connection. He wasn't just babbling off the top of his head when the scriptures say he did not know what he should say. Peter didn't know how to put it into words when he said, let's make a, a tabernacle, let's make booths for you and for Elijah and for Moses to stay here. There's something going on. There's something that's coming to fulfillment. Peter had good theological instincts. His impressions were on the right track because Jesus' resurrection is theologically identified for us as what? Do you know this? Jesus' resurrection is identified for us as the first fruits of those from the dead. Jesus is the first fruits. Uh, we are to follow in the full harvest. This is well established in 1 Corinthians, in uh, Romans 8, in Revelation 14. So Peter's not just babbling nonsense. Peter's reaching for a connection. He didn't know how, what to say as he should, according to the text of the Scriptures. He couldn't put it into words. By the way, do you ever find yourself in that situation? You have the impressions of the Holy Spirit, of the truth of, of God, but you struggle to quite put it into words. You don't know how to say it as you should. You can't put it into words. Well, as a matter of fact, Scripture says to us that we don't know how to pray as we ought. We can't put our own prayers into words the way that we ought to, according to the will of God. Have you ever read that in Romans chapter 8? The Holy Spirit helps us. 
He makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. We can't quite formulate it. We can't put it all into words. But the Holy Spirit interprets and intercedes for us. And Jesus is the intercessor in heaven making intercession of our prayers before the throne of grace, before Almighty God, according to the will of God. Do you know what the Holy Spirit and the intercession of Jesus are for us? They're the fulfillment of the covenant requirement of two witnesses. The Holy Spirit and Jesus, the person of the Holy Spirit, the person of the glorified Jesus as our heavenly high priest and intercessor, agree as covenant witnesses to the truth of our prayers, even when we don't know how to put words to them, but our earnest desire is for the will and the glory of God. I have that desire. I know you do. I know you pray with groanings. I know there are times when you can't put it into words. Peter here, witnessing the transfiguration of Jesus, can't quite put it into words. But his impressions were right, on the right track. There's something about the first fruits. There's something about the harvest. There's something about the, the tabernacle of our Moving on with God. And, and Peter got that sense. There's something happening here for the glory of God. So don't sell, sell Peter short. I have a little bit more to say about that as we go on. So here, look at verse 9. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. What things did Peter, James, and John see in this apocalyptic vision? Jesus says, don't tell anybody about, about this vision and what you saw. Well, the transfiguration of Jesus as the Christ of God is an apocalyptic vision in which Peter, James, and John were transferred into the spiritual realm of reality, of spiritual reality, as witnesses to the pre-resurrection divine glory of Jesus accompanied by Moses and Elijah being authenticated by the glory cloud and the voice of God the Father. Does that blow you away? <laughs> I know I'm dating myself with my lingo. It blows me away. It blows my mind. That just overwhelms me. It's astounding. Peter, James, and John in an apocalyptic vision, were transferred into the spiritual reality. That was really Moses. That was really Elijah with them. That was really the glory cloud of God and the voice of God they heard. And more than all of that, they were given a glimmer. They couldn't even describe it. He glowed. He shined. He burst forth. There was a sunburst. But he was identifiable. Of the pre-resurrection glory of Jesus as the Christ of God. But remember what Peter said? We have a more sure word in the Holy Scriptures that tells us what it was all about. So, the gag order <laughs> that Jesus gave them. Don't tell anybody about this vision. That gag order was qualified when Jesus says, It would be lifted when the Son of Man shall rise from the dead. So Jesus says, you got to keep this to yourself. But when I'm risen from the dead, then you can tell everybody about it. And they preached the glory of Jesus in the resurrection, and they reflected back on the transfiguration. And Peter says, in terms of that transfiguration, we have even the fullness of Scripture to tell us even more what it was all about. Don't doubt it. Don't doubt this transfiguration. 
This transfiguration was like a preview of the greater reality of the resurrection of Jesus, of which the book of Revelation seems to just expand with amazing fireworks of wonder. So look at verse 10. So they kept this word to themselves. Now pay attention to this. They, they kept, they were very careful about what Jesus said about not telling anyone about this until he should rise from the dead. So they did keep it. They kept this word to themselves, but then they were questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Now, wouldn't you think that would be an obvious question? Jesus says, you, you beheld this vision, but I'm telling you, don't tell anybody about it. I'm telling you, you must keep this quiet. As a matter of fact, the scriptures say he forcefully, he commanded them. He strictly told them. In other words, Jesus put them under oath. You do not tell anyone about this until I am risen from the dead. And look at verse 10. So they kept this word to themselves among the three questioning. Yeah, among the three, they didn't tell anybody else, but what are they questioning as they come down the mountain? What does the rising from the dead mean? So I want you to pay close attention to this. What discussion did Peter, James, and John have among themselves about rising from the dead? Well, in the gospel accounts, the, the conversation is not recorded. Uh, Mark gives us the most information here. Matthew gives about the same information. And uh, Luke just says they came down from the mountain. And so the conversation is not recorded for us, this questioning about what the rising from the dead means. But remember, they had just witnessed the spiritual reality of the living presence of Moses and Elijah. What do you think you would be wanting to know? This is the reality, beloved. The spiritual reality. Moses and Elijah are alive. All believers in Jesus Christ are alive. Our beloved loved ones who have gone on before us, not only in the ancient past, but in the immediate present, parents, grandparents, and even extended family of others. Many times our hearts are broken because they're taken out of this life. But those who are believers in Jesus Christ, they're alive, beloved. They are alive. They're in the re reality that Moses and Elijah... We're in the reality, the living reality, as they appeared in that apocalyptic vision to Jesus. That, that's the point that is being made here. What do you think Peter, James, and John were talking about in terms of the resurrection and what it means? Well, the promise of resurrection from the dead was a doctrinal belief about the final judgment. That's why we use that scripture this morning calling us to worship, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Remember what Martha said to him? See, Martha had been well taught. And Martha knew. She says, I know that my brother will raise in the resurrection at the last day. See, Jesus came and said, your brother's going to live again. I know, Lord. Like, for instance, you and me. Someone comes to me and says, you know, your dad's going to live again. I know my dad's going to resurrect in the day of, of, of the great day of resurrection. I know my dad's going to resurrect. I know my grandparents. I know those whom I love who in my family were in Christ. I know they will resurrect at the last day. That's what Martha was saying. I've been well taught. I know that. I know they will. And Martha was not denying that. She was just heartbroken because she wasn't ready to say goodbye to her brother. And then what does Jesus say to her? There's more to it, Martha. There's more to the resurrection than just someone coming back from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live again. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ who has come into the world. 
There's more to the resurrection theologically than just returning from the dead. And so, see, Peter, James, and John are talking about what does the resurrection from the dead mean? We just saw Moses and Elijah with Jesus glorified. We heard the voice of God, and Jesus says, don't tell anybody about it until I'm risen from the dead. Wow, there must be something more about this resurrection. What does it all mean? So the promise of resurrection from the dead was a doctrinal belief about the final judgment with some Old Testament accounts of people returned from the dead and also as publicly witnessing Jesus raising some from the dead. However, Elijah poses a different case, a special case for two reasons. Now, Peter, James, and John were familiar with the stories of those who had been raised from the dead in the Old Testament. More than that, Peter, James, and John were witnesses publicly of Jesus raising the dead. Previously in the chapters of Mark, Jesus has raised the dead. But now there's something more because the question about Elijah poses two questions, two two reasons of concern. One, Elijah was transferred to heaven, apparently changed, but without experiencing physical death. Hmm. So here we have a challenge. Generally, even those who are awaiting resurrection physically die. Their bodies are buried. And we're awaiting resurrection glory. Remember we talked about that earlier. That's what distinguishes the resurrection promise as theological resurrection. It's not just someone returning from the dead. It's resurrection glory. And see... Elijah, according to Scripture, was taken up to heaven without physically dying. But he appeared in the vision to Jesus as Elijah. I don't know if he was glorified, but he was known. This is Elijah. And from everything in Scripture, Elijah didn't come back to earth to die. Elijah was taken up to heaven. You know what's also interesting? The Bible tells us, where is Moses' body? Moses' body was taken to heaven by Michael. He would not dispute with the devil over the body of Moses, but said, the Lord rebuke you. That's in Jude. It's really interesting. But here's the point. Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in the spiritual reality. Moses and Elijah are alive. Both Moses and Elijah, were told in Scripture, had their bodies taken to heaven. That's something significant. And here's the second thing. It was wrongly expected that Elijah's return would be the return from the dead to earth in a physical, literal Elijah. That's where Jesus is going next with this. When they're saying about what does the the, the resurrection from the dead mean? And what about Elijah? We just saw Elijah is alive. And there was an expectation, and I want you to really follow this because it's important. There was an expectation that Elijah must return from the dead, that Elijah must come physically and literally, which completely misses the point that it was not about Elijah. See, that's where Jesus is directing the understanding of the apostles and us now. You see, this preoccupation with the physical, literal return of Elijah, it's not about Elijah. Elijah's alive and well in heaven. So, Don't be fooled, Jesus is saying, about the false expectations of Elijah having to return literally and physically. 
And as a matter of fact, they understood this because Matthew says they understood that Jesus was talking about John the Baptist. Do you get that? Did you make the connection? It's not about Elijah coming back literally and physically from the dead. Jesus, or Elijah is live and well in heaven. When Jesus says Elijah will return, or answering their question, which they're going to ask, what about the scribes saying Elijah must return? And Jesus says, indeed. But according to God's purpose, not according to false expectations and forced literalism of Elijah returning from the dead. Because it's not about Elijah. As John the Baptist understood, it's not about me. I must decrease. He must increase. Who did Jesus say? Before this transfiguration, Jesus had been saying, who is the Elijah who is to come? John the baptizer is the Elijah who is to come. If you can understand this, Jesus said. Matthew says now in terms of the discussion that Peter, James, and John had with Jesus coming down from the mountain when they asked him about this, they understood that Jesus was talking about John the baptizer. So I want you to look at uh, verse 11. And they, Peter, James, and John, asked Jesus saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? All right. The New Covenant Christian Gospel interprets and validates Old Testament prophecies and promises as covenantal types and antitypes by more than a forced literalism of earthbound effects. You really need to listen carefully to this. This is the comprehensive rubric which and still is the disputed key to New Covenant mysteries about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It's not about some kind of forced literalism with earthbound effects. Oh, Elijah has to come back from the dead. Elijah has to come back from heaven. Elijah has to come back physically and uh, materially the same Elijah. And Jesus says, no, you miss it. <laughs> That's not the Elijah who is to come. The Elijah who is to come is John the baptizer. Not as a reincarnation of Elijah, but he comes in the office of Elijah as the greater than Elijah. The greater privilege, the greatest privilege of any Old Covenant prophet. John the baptizer was the last of the Old Covenant prophets. He was the one who re restored after 400 years of silence. He comes as God restores the covenant witness to Israel. John the baptizer is the last Old Covenant prophet who comes and identifies Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And that's why Jesus says, of all the prophets, there is none greater than John the baptizer. He is the culmination and he is the greatest in privilege of all the Old Covenant prophets. He laid his hands on Jesus, he baptized him. He said, I'm not worthy to unlatch his sandal. He must... Increase, and I must decrease. Because John the baptizer understood, as well as the disciples came to understand, uh, came to understand as well, that this was the office of the prophet Elijah. And in that prophet, God restored the covenant witness after 400 years to Israel, identifying the Messiah. He was the promised forerunner of the Messiah. And so it's not with some kind of forced literalism on reclaiming earthbound effects. This has to be earthbound 
but rather it was an antitype, type and antitype, that between Old Covenant and New Covenant that is set out for us in Scripture. Now, it's commonly repeated that Peter, James, and John did not ask Jesus about the meaning of rising from the dead. But I want you to see that is indeed the puzzling issue that they're asking Jesus about. And, and by this, I hope to give you a, a lesson in understanding and reading and, and studying Scripture. And that is, here's an example of interjecting an opinion into a passage, but mistaking the developing thought in the context of the narrative. Often opinions like this, oh, the disciples didn't ask Jesus what the rising from the dead meant. That, that's repeated. I, I read that in several references. That opinion became commonplace, is passed on to become something of a received tradition. Oh, the disciples didn't ask Jesus what the rising from the dead meant. Now, this particular opinion that they didn't ask Jesus what the rising from the dead meant um, doesn't conflict with any essential Christian doctrine. This observation, oh, the disciples should ask Jesus what it meant. They didn't ask Jesus what it meant. And that becomes a, a passed on where everybody just assumes, oh, they didn't ask Jesus what it meant. And we just skate over what Scripture really says here. But there's something valuable. There's something useful in the observation of Mark's narrative. They did indeed ask Jesus what it meant. Like us. These Christian believers, Peter, James, and John, believing in Jesus as the Christ, having just witnessed the transfiguration, having heard him say they weren't to tell anybody about it until he rose from the dead. And they began to talk about what does the rising from the dead mean. And they asked Jesus this question, which indeed is the very question. What about Elijah? We just witnessed, we just saw him. So what does the resurrection from the dead mean? Like us, they desired to know the deeper truths about the mysteries of the kingdom of God in heaven. I, I hope I'm getting this apart clearly. Peter, James, and John wanted to know more. They didn't huddle up over here by themselves and, and, and try to hide from Jesus and say, oh, what does he mean? You know, the resurrection from the dead. I don't know, that's weird. What is he talking about? <coughs> Coming down the mountain, they were with Jesus. Jesus told them, don't talk about this to anyone until I rise from the dead. And so they began to discuss among themselves. Who is themselves? Well, who was there? Peter, James, and John, and Jesus. And they began to question among themselves and ask among themselves. And they asked Jesus specifically, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? That is about the resurrection. They can't figure it out. We just saw Elijah. He's alive and well. He's really alive. <laughs> he came from heaven. So what does it mean that Elijah must come first? They're asking Jesus about the meaning. So here's the point. To say these men did not ask Jesus about the meaning of rising from the dead, verse 10, okay, verse 10, so they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Oh, they didn't ask Jesus what it meant. Look at verse 11. And they asked Jesus, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Do you see the connection that they indeed did ask Jesus what it meant? And so... I don't know, maybe you think I'm overstating the case, but for me it's very important that we look at what Scripture has to say and that we follow it clearly and carefully, and I believe that verses 10 and 11 shouldn't be separated, I mean, in our thought. 
Because in verse 10, about the rising from the dead, wanting to know what it means, questioning what it means, they come up with a question for Jesus in verse 11 that's very much about that. We don't get this resurrection from the dead because Elijah is alive. So why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus had already previously been telling them that John the Baptist is the greater Elijah. So if you will, look at verses 12 and 13. Jesus answered and told them. Okay, they asked Jesus about Elijah and the resurrection. Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it, and how is it written concerning the Son of Man? that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you, Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of them, as written of him. And so Jesus reiterates here what he had been previously teaching. And I've got scripture references in your, um, in your uh, notes there. If you want to go back and see, Jesus had already been saying, if you can understand this, John the baptizer is the Elijah who is to come. He's the expected Elijah who comes in the prophetic office, not in his personal reincarnation or his his personal returning from the dead. So it's not about Elijah personally. It's about the office of Elijah. He is the promised prophet after 400 years of silence. He returns as the herald of the Messiah, and he brings the covenant witness back to Israel, pointing out that Jesus is the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Now, here's another thing that I, I want to point out to you this morning because this comes up in this uh, question about Elijah, defying exactly what Jesus said, defying what Scripture identifies for us, and building up a false interpretive uh, scheme called double fulfillment. So going beyond the teaching of Jesus, some teachers continuing today confound Scripture by insisting that Elijah must return personally and physically to the earth. He must come back from the dead. And these false schemes of double fulfillment about prophecy are misleading. They're false teaching. And they confuse many people. If this teaching of, of double fulfillment was necessary, and there are those who say, oh, uh, for the literalism of Scripture, for God's word to be true, Elijah must come personally and physically back from the dead. I mean, completely confounding everything that Jesus has said about interpreting Elijah's return. And so why would we just limit this situation about Elijah saying, oh, by double fulfillment, Elijah must come back from the dead? Why don't we say by double fulfillment, Jesus must be incarnated again? Why don't we say by double fulfillment, Jesus must be crucified again? Why don't we say by a forced literalism that defies Scripture that Jesus must return again, but in forced literalism, he must return unglorified. Because that's the way he was previously on earth, unglorified in his human nature. And I get upset about this because it misleads people. It's part of a false uh, system of imposing on Scripture, not the clear and, and, and knowing meaning of Scripture, but in making it fit into a preconceived pattern or, or system that uh, turns upside down many, many clear teachings in Scripture in terms of this double fulfillment. And this opinion of double fulfillment, as I said, has been developed into a theological system which leads to contradictions 
over plain and knowable teaching of Scripture involving essential New Covenant uh, Christian meaning about the mysteries of the kingdom of God in heaven. How much have we already seen in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus says these are the mysteries of the kingdom? It's given for you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. This is what the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is about. Over and over and over again, Jesus has said, I have come preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is what the kingdom of God is. And over and over, he's he's correcting false misunderstandings. He's correcting earthbound, materialistic, literalistic forcing of scripture into man-made schemes. Done by the, the scribes and the Pharisees and their traditions. And done since that time, even today. And I gave you an example of those who say that, well, uh, for the forced, literal, and uh, physical meaning of this uh, teaching of Elijah returning, Elijah has to come back. He has to come back as in person, in his body. And Jesus said, that's not what this is about. It's not about Elijah. And it's not about this forced literalism imposed on Scripture. Now, what about some of the essential New Covenant Christian meaning that is turned upside down by this kind of scheme. Well, I've mentioned to them uh, I've mentioned in them to you before, but some examples would be the new age. With a new covenant comes a new age. With a new age comes a new Israel, a new Jerusalem, a new temple, a new way of worshiping God in the heavens and earth. You see how that all is being affected and turned upside down in terms of the good news if the forced literalism is imposed on Scripture against the clear teaching of Jesus and the apostles and the New Testament writings. Jesus said, this is Elijah who is to come. Forget about your forced literalism. Elijah is alive and well in heaven. This is the Elijah who is to come in prophetic office, the one greater than Elijah, the greatest of all privileges of Old Testament covenant, uh, of, of old uh, covenant prophets. The greatest of all Old Covenant prophets is John the Baptizer. And what did Jesus say? He who is least. Where? Do you know the scripture, don't you? I tell you that John the Baptizer is the greatest. There is none greater of Old Testament prophets than John the Baptizer. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, by privilege. Jesus says John the Baptizer had the greatest privilege of all Old Covenant prophets. All Old Covenant prophets culminate in him as the restored witness of the covenant to the one who baptized, to the one who anointed, to the one who pointed to and declared Jesus as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, the forerunner and herald of the Messiah. But I say to you, Jesus said, but I say to you, he who is least in privilege in the kingdom of heaven is greater than, has greater privilege than John the baptizer. Can you make any sense out of what Jesus is saying? If you understand the new covenant gospel, you can. Because with the benefits of the new covenant gospel and the fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, those who seem to have the least privilege 
have a greater presence, have a greater witness, have a greater attestation of the Holy Spirit's presence, have a greater uh, wonder than what John the baptizer had on this earth. Well, those are the kinds of things we can't just skate over. So, as the prophet Elijah was despised, rejected, and condemned by King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, so the greater Elijah, John the baptizer, who restored the covenant witness to Israel, was martyred by King Herod and Herodias after he identified Jesus to be the despised and rejected Messiah, the Son of Man foretold in Scripture. There is no double fulfillment of what Jesus says here. Look at verses 12 and 13. Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how it is written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you, Elijah has come, has also come. And they did to him whatever they wished as it is written of him. And then as I said, Matthew adds that they understood that Jesus was speaking of John the baptizer. And I gave you scripture references to where Jesus has previously been telling them that John the baptizer was the Elijah who was to come. And what Jesus says here about him being the identified Messiah, the Christ, who would be despised and rejected as the Son of Man foretold in Scripture. And this is what it means that he must rise from the dead because they're going to kill him. But he says this is the meaning of the gospel, of the power of the kingdom of God, because though they kill him, they can't keep him. He will rise from the dead. And so the transfiguration of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, revealing the transcendent and the imminent power in the kingdom of God, informs all confrontations with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Previous to the transfiguration, Jesus has been in conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil. He's shown that. He's shown his power. He's revealed himself. He's uh, vanquished dead, death by raising the dead. He's confounded the devil and the demons by banishing them and overpowering and overruling them. He has claimed to be the Son of God with power on earth to forgive sin, the prerogative of God only. And the transfiguration is the punctuation of exclamation point. This is my Son. Hear Him. And from this point forward, we will see that it is that very transcendent and imminent being, Jesus the Christ, the God-man, who not only confronted the world, the flesh, and the devil in the days of his flesh, but in giving us preview of resurrection glory, tells us that he goes on, and in the resurrection, he returns to heaven glorified to carry on that confrontation against the world, the flesh, and the devil, assuring us of what he told Peter. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ, past, present, or future. That's what I want to nail down for you. 
in these days of uncertainty, in these days of confused voices, in these days telling us that Elijah has to come back from the dead, in these days telling us that there's double fulfillment of prophecy that is selectively chosen here and there. But if it were forced in its literalism, it would have to say that Jesus comes back unglorified. That's a bunch of foolishness that is all confusing to our right understanding of what the kingdom of God is, that Jesus is king, and the world, the flesh, and the devil, past, present, and future, shall not prevail against his kingdom, the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, glorified in heaven for us. We don't know how to pray as we ought. The Holy Spirit helps us with groanings which cannot be uttered. We, like Peter, sometimes cannot put it into words, but we have good theological instincts that have been born in us, attested by the Holy Spirit, that we know by two covenant witnesses, the Holy Spirit and the glorified, ascended Jesus, that our prayers are effectually brought to the will of God and our utmost desire is for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Even Jesus said the Holy Spirit will not glorify himself. He'll glorify me. How much less John the Baptist or, or Elijah <laughs> or you or me. Who do we glorify? Lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I am glorified, like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, I'll draw all kinds of people to myself. Let us lift up the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who is glorified by resurrection the first fruits of those from the dead and let us latch on to the Christian doctrine of resurrection as about more than someone returning from the dead. It's about resurrection glorification that is promised to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, glorified in heaven for us. Our concluding hymn this morning